there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. So if people ask me what I do, I can say I host a podcast or I run a podcasting company. But honestly, the truest answer to that question is I'm an editor. I think editing is maybe the one thing that I'm actually good at. And in much of my day-to-day work at Gimlet, it's what I do. I edit things. I edit scripts, interviews, stories, story pitches, the occasional PowerPoint deck. And what that means is I just read those things or watch them or listen to them and then offer suggestions to make them better. Cut this, move that, change that other thing. And while being a good editor is helpful professionally, the instinct towards editing can be really annoying in other parts of my life. Take, for example, my children. I love being a parent. I love it so much. But it is a constant struggle to stop from editing them. If my seven-year-old daughter draws a picture of a cloud filled with candy and butterflies and pink and purple flowers, for example, my first thought is, honestly, it's a little much. Maybe lose the flowers. I think the butterflies get the point across just fine. I don't say that, of course. But God help me, I think it. And so I direct all that pent-up editorial frustration that I am not unleashing on my actual children at the closest available target, their books. There are so many children's books that I hate, with lazy plot lines and stock tropes, the grandmotherly fairy godmother, the magic totem, a ring, a necklace, a family heirloom that gets accidentally invoked, the sappy, sappy moral at the end. And as you might expect, a lot of the children's books that I hate, my kids actually love, which, you know, it's fine. We're reading for them. But when I do come across a children's book that my kids and I both enjoy, that I don't immediately want to start taking a mental red pen to, it's exciting. And that happened recently when we stumbled on a series called Dory Phantasmagory. The Dory series focuses on the title character, Dory, who is the youngest of three. And one of the central facts of her life that motivates a lot of the plot is that she really wants to play with her older siblings, and they really don't want to play with her. And so... She hangs out instead with an assortment of imaginary friends and gets into all kinds of adventures with just her imagination to keep her company. And what I find so impressive about the books is how completely authentic the character of Dory is. It is as completely imagined a world as the most immersive adult fiction you've read, but rendered with I-can-read words and line drawings so simple you almost miss their sophistication. And so, as I read the Dory books, instead of the normal narrative in my head— the move this, cut that, change the other thing narrative that I always have, I have a different question. How did the author pull this off? 
How did you create a book that talks so fluently to both kids and adults? Well, I have a podcast, this podcast you're listening to right now, Without Fail, where I get to ask those questions to people. And so I invited the author of the Dory books to come out and talk to me. My name is Abby Hanlon, and I'm an author and an illustrator Uh, of a chapter book series called Dory Phantasmagory. Talking to Abby, I found out there's a very specific answer to how she makes her books so authentic and true to life. It's a fascinating answer that I never would have expected, and we'll get to it later on in the interview. But first, we kick things off with something else Abby told me, something that I couldn't believe, which is, for a good chunk of her early adulthood, being a children's book author and illustrator was nowhere on her radar. She was a teacher, and she loved it. She loved kids. She loved the work. She had no desire to do anything different, at least not a conscious desire. But that all changed Almost literally in an instant, it happened in the dismissal line at the end of the school day where she was teaching in Brooklyn. She and the other teachers were ushering the kids to their parents and caregivers who were picking them up. I was on the schoolyard, and the kids were lined up to go home, and I was saying hi to all the parents. And this dad came up to me, whose son was in my class, and he said, you know what my job is, right? And I was like, no, I don't. And he said, I'm an agent. I represent children's book authors and illustrators. And then he just, like, kind of looked at me. Like, I didn't—it was a really weird moment because there was, like, this long pause. And I feel like in that moment, like, it was like the, like, clouds, like, parted or something. Where it was like, is he saying that because he thinks I'm— uh, author and an illustrator like that's just ira- completely irrational like I feel like it was like some kind of like weird like s- like glitch or like psychic moment where I mean I don't know how to describe it because it's so weird he knew I was his kid's teacher you know and but he just said it to me as if it was such big news and so expectantly and so I said um I don't know what I said. I probably said nothing. And so then he said, so that means I can give you guys like tons of free books. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. (laughs) But um, yeah. But so I think it was just like the idea that, I mean, I'd never ever thought of that as a job for anybody, really. But in misunderstanding his intent. Yeah. Because all he was saying was like, you know what, I, I, I can get you lots of deals on books, essentially. Yeah. But like when he said that to you and you misunderstood his intent, yeah, it sort of told you about your own desire. Yeah. I had this, I had a very, it wasn't the same moment. Yeah. But it was a very similar moment where I, I was a producer at This American Life for a long, long time and very, very happy. And then like eventually I, 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 I started this other podcast called Planet Money. Uh-huh. And and a big reason that I did that, I, I, I would have told you that I was like super happy at my job. Right. And then I had this dream that Ted Koppel uh-huh. came and 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 was like at a dinner party or something with me. Yeah. And was like, when are you gonna when are you gonna when are you gonna do something with your life? Oh <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Are you gonna work for someone else your whole life? And, like in the dream, he said this to me. And then I woke up and I told and I told my wife, I was like, I had the weirdest dream. Yeah. And then she was like, I think that dream is trying to tell you. Like, it's funny these like things that you sort of like 
somehow he was like the authority of your unconscious. It, but it's like these moments where the thing that you unconsciously desire, subconsciously desire, yeah. becomes clear to your conscious mind. Right. And in these like sort of weird accidental ways. And yeah. for me, it was a dream. And for yeah. you, it was this like strange, <laughs> <laughs> crazy belief that, that that God had sent you an agent yeah. <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Within a half an hour of meeting that agent, Abby was back at home starting to write her very first book. But she quickly realized she didn't really know what to write about. So she took stock of her own life. So the first story was I that I wrote was about um, this little girl in my class who I loved, who was my favorite kid in my class, um, who was stealing chalk from the classroom. And that was a I mean, a terrible topic. Um, people, I mean, I didn't know that that people didn't even use chalk, I mean, anymore. We used chalk there, but um, it was what? kind of the end of chalk, right? Like, <laughs> right. and I mean, I the drawings were awful and the story was awful. But what's, I feel like what's so interesting about like being an, an artist or a creative person is like everybody starts off with awful stuff like that's just how it works i don't think anybody like does something brilliant on their first try first so draft like always sucks yeah Stuck my mantra for me it was like the first 20 but like <laughs> yeah. the if if ever what the weird thing is like if it's going to be awful in the beginning then there's also this other strange thing that happens this like strange phenomenon where like part of you has to actually think that it's good even though like that's why you keep going, you know? Uh-huh. So I thought it was good. And um, I kept rewriting and um, working on these little illustrations. And I waited until the end of the school year. And I sent it to that parent who said he was an agent. Oh. And um, and it's just Did funny. you include the whole backstory about like the- No. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> you were like, I didn't mention you back then in the nope. in the in the in the in the fair in the goodbye yeah. line <laughs> in the dismissal line. But uh <laughs> but I happen to be an author and illustrator myself. <laughs> so you so you sent it to sent it to this guy. I this sent parent. it to him and then I just obsessed over when he was gonna email me back. Right. Like obsessed. Right. You know, and I just waited and waited all summer for this guy to email me back. Like, my life depended on it. And 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 thinking, and, like, when you're, like, a new writer or whatever, you think that that, whatever you just put out there is, like, your total identity, you know? Yeah. So um, he never wrote me back, so I I wrote him. And then he did, um, he did write me a nice um, email and was like, um... I'm not sure about the story about stealing chalk, you know, um, but there's some nice things in it that show that, like, you have a real sense of, of like, awareness of children and keep working on it and that kind of thing. How did it feel to get that? I mean, like, a total diss. Yeah, because, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, because I thought it was going to, like, because, I don't know, it's just maybe that's how young people think. They think they're so great. Like, I thought it was going to be like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't wait to publish this. Yeah. I remember having those thoughts, too, just, like, when I was first trying to get into the whatever the thing I was trying to get into, like, I don't know, the world of yeah. nonfiction narrative journalism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was sending my own versions of that yeah. letter and, like, waiting for responses. And in retrospect, like, of course— yeah. Nobody was going to write me back. Right. <laughs> but at the time, you don't know it, and it's all all your identity is wrapped up in this mm-hmm. whole th- this thing. And it just feels like, yeah, I'm gonna. This is my everything. 
Yeah. So, yeah, devastating. I mean, the thing that I had going for me was, like, blind determination. Like, I just could not be stopped. And I looked at this book called um, Marketplace for Writers and Illustrators for Children's Books, and they listed in the book some agents in New York City. So I sent it to maybe, like, five different agents Since I didn't know them, I had no idea if anybody would get back to me. You know, I had lower expectations. But um, I did hear back from somebody right away who said, "Um, this is interesting. Call me. So I called her and um, she said, tell me the truth. Have you ever taken a drawing class before? And I said, no. And she said, well, that really shows. Um, and <laughs> so she said, um, I get 100 manuscripts a week. Um, and I don't usually contact people. But there is something in this manuscript that I feel like I need to pursue. And um, she said, I think that you have talent but you don't have any skill um so she said work on your illustrations like take a class and learn how to draw i remember at the time saying like yeah but the drawings are so simple like they're just like line drawings they're like you know like mo willems's pigeon and she like just laughed at me and was like i can't believe you think that it's like that because they're not anything like that you know um it shows how little you know yeah yeah Yeah. and and mo williams of course is the one of the more successful children's authors out there the pigeon rides the bus and many many others and right and with like just these simple line drawings like he can convey so much but i was so far from that so she said take a drawing class work on it and then send me a postcard of your progress. So I did that. I mean, I sent her postcards every once in a while. um, But at the same time, I came up with another story that was stronger about a little boy who was in my class at that school in Park Slope who, um, who hated writer's workshop. And like every time, you know, was writing, he would try to find other things to do besides write, like just go in the hallway and get, get, go to the water fountain and like, distract himself in any way possible then to, you know, because he just didn't want to sit there and write. And, but he was the kid in my class who had the best stories and, but he didn't have the motor skills to write them down, at you two, know? At, at, at like, by already by second grade, he was a tortured writer. <laughs> yeah. So when I wrote that, um, and I sent it back to that same agent whose name is Ann Tobias, um, the, the, you know, the woman who said, this is my phone number, send me a postcard. Um, she right away recognized that this was a real story and that there, this, there was a market for this story. Um, and so she said, um, again, like, keep working on your art and, like, we'll get this in shape. Um, and so I, what I did during those years was was really weird. Like, instead of, I mean, because I was so, I was just fueled by really just one thing, which was determination, I never tried to draw other things. I only tried to draw that one book. Like, I just drew that one book like a thousand times. That's how I learned how to draw. (laughs) 
That's really crazy. <laughs> I know. I'm like embarrassed to say that. <laughs> Wait, how many years did you draw that one book for? Um, okay, uh, like five. Five years. Well, I mean, in the meantime, like I had kids and um, I was home with my twins and I didn't, I mean, you have to draw something over and over and over again until it becomes like, um, like when you're first learning, like so like the, that you're that you can reproduce something that you're like steady and consistent and like can draw a, char- a character that looks the same in different positions. And that was really hard. Um, so you would draw it, you draw a new version, yeah. send it to your agent. Yeah. Like there was like a knife in my back all the time. that was like, prove yourself, prove yourself. Like, cause just like how there was something about me that she saw, like there was something about her that I was like, how did, you know, like, she picked this up out of nowhere. Like the yeah. thing was a mess when I gave it to her. Yeah. And what's what was I think really wise about her was that like she didn't she didn't try to sell it until she thought it was ready. Right. Then somewhere in this these years, um, Anne said, Okay, this story's great. Let's let's I'm gonna try to sell it. Coming up, I expose the true and shocking secret to Abby's success. That's after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with author and illustrator Abby Hanlon. Abby's agent did manage to sell Abby's first book. It was called Ralph Tells a Story, and it was published in the fall of 2012. Meaning eight years after that meeting in the school dismissal line, Abby was officially a children's book author and illustrator. But it wasn't until her next book that my family, along with a lot of other families, came to know Abby Hanlon. That book was, of course, Dory Phantasmagory, which ultimately went on to become a series. It was a longer book that Abby wrote for kids in elementary school. And what she might not have realized is that parents like me would also appreciate it. There are so many sections of the book that I love that I could point out. But there's one in particular that captures the unique voice Abby Hanlon has created in the Dory books. It's the thing that made me want to invite her, of all the children's book authors I've come across, onto this podcast. It's in chapter three of the first Dory book. Dory has successfully immobilized her invisible nemesis, Mrs. Gobblegracker, a 507-year-old woman with sharp black teeth and pockets full of dirty tissues, by shooting her with sleeping darts. So Dory is now free to focus on her next task at hand, convincing her older siblings, Luke and Violet, to let her play with them. And she comes this close, but at the very last minute, they decide they'd rather play with a doll instead. So Dory has stalked off She's thrown a temper tantrum and eventually wandered despondently outside in her bathing suit and lay down in the hammock. The book continues. I lie in the hammock all by myself and think maybe Luke and Violet are right. Maybe I am a baby. I think of all the babyish things I do. I still smell my bunny and suck my fingers to fall asleep. I still put my clothes on inside out. I still can't whistle. I still overflow everything I pour. I still want to wear my nightgown all day. This is me again, just editorializing for a second. If there is a list that more perfectly encapsulates the gnawing anxieties of a six-year-old, I can't imagine it. But then, in the very next sentence, in perfect six-year-old fashion, Dory is deep into a fantasy. So the next sentence goes, When I look up at the trees through my tears, I see someone up there looking down at me. Who are you, I ask, rubbing my eyes, squinting into the sun. I'm your fairy godmother, says a little man, crawling down the tree like a koala. Talk to Abby Hanlon about that section. And it's so matter of fact. Like, it's like, and she can just, like, and that's what I love about it. It's just matter matter of fact. She's crying. She's thinking about all these things that she's, like, still a baby about. And then she looks up in the tree, and then she's just like, who are you? And then she's just in it. Yeah. And it's not cutesy. 
It's just matter of fact. Yeah. And then he tries to turn her into a um, uh, into a pineapple. It doesn't work. And then she's like, I looked down at my body. I don't feel like a pineapple. I say, do I look like one? Mr. Nagy looks at me very carefully. He sniffs me. He pokes me. Then sadly, he shakes his head no. But then I have an idea. How about a puppy, I say? Can you turn me into a puppy? Definitely, he says, jumping up excitedly. No problem at all. He's lucky that I'm already really good at turning into a puppy. And <sighs> And like, it's so, it's, you've captured the exact essence of like the fantasy play where it's like both real and not real and yeah. they know they're pretending, but they also get deep. They get right back into it. Yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> I'd never seen it done that well before. Wow. Well, I like the part that you chose. <laughs> I mean, I had this huge advantage when I was writing that book because I lived with two six year olds and I was home with them all the time. And they they're, they played like crazy. They played, you know, all day. And their games were always imaginative. And I just spent a lot of time listening to them, spying on them. And um, I was just, I don't know, there's something about play that has always fascinated me just because it's so all-encompassing um, and transporting. And I just kind of like was aware that as I was just going about my job as a mom and like washing the dishes and doing the laundry, that there was something, there was another reality happening that was right next to me that was as real as my reality, you know? Yeah. Um, so you probably have that too in your house with two kids close in age, right? Yeah. I'm sure every parent says this to you, but like, this is my daughter. Oh, like she's yeah. like, she, she, she will... Every once in a while, she'll just disappear into a room, and you'll go in there, and she'll just be like talking, yeah, to like no one, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like she'll look up, like, like she's mad, you know, yeah. she's just like, and I'm just like, I have to get out, right, right, and you yeah. don't want to make eye contact with, yes, her. Yeah, exactly, because yeah, yeah. you just want to yeah, break, break it, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is like, is you know, I've been we we read your books to to my kids, and they loved these books and it was just like, you know, we just tore through them. And I was ex ex trying to explain to my team, like, what it was that I found, like, you know, there's a couple of, like, children's books are one of those things where everybody thinks they can do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, because you don't have to, like, the, there's fewer words and, like, people think children are dumb. And, right. And so, like, and so you just, there's so much crap. It's hard to figure out, like, wait, why are the ones that are good good and 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 i think what i think i love about the dory books and what you've managed to do is it is a it is the exact worldview of a six-year-old if they had the ability to sort of articulate their word world worldview in adult words it's yeah. like somehow you have managed to create the world as perceived by a six-year-old um but not, but not dumb it down and not, it's just, it's really incredible. And so, and so what that gives, and so what that means is that as the parent reading it mm -hmm. and as the child being read to, you both feel seen and heard and, and wow. you both get it yeah. at the same time. And it works on, for both your levels. Well, uh, my kids have actually helped me a lot. They have, they, you know, so when I told them when they were when they were five, that, like, I was going to make this book, they were super interested and have been part of this process from the beginning. So they um, 
they were still in preschool when I started it, and they were really into fairy tales. And they really wanted to read chapter books so badly Um, because, you know, because chapter books are cool. Yeah. And I would write the books while they were at school. And then when they would come home, I would be like, hey, you guys, do you want to hear what I wrote today? Like if I had a good day and actually had something. And then, you know, all through elementary school, we did this and they would get excited and they would, we'd sit on the couch and get a snack and I would read from my computer what I wrote. And then like right away, they would just start interrupting me um, because they were like, no, wait, what? Like, Mr. Nuggie would never say that. Or like, Roosevelt doesn't wear that or, you know, uh-huh. that kind of thing. So like, then I would then I would listen to them and then I would rewrite it. And so I would, like, all, so much of the books were written, like, with the three of us together, sitting on the couch and, like, exchanging ideas and, and fighting, you know, about it. Like, um, and so, like, we were a team. We were a team of writers. And, like, my editor... The, like, amazing thing about my editor is that she really knew that and she really respected that process. Uh-huh. And, like, she, like, let them be my editors, too. Like, she was very, like, hands-off. And she knew that, like, I—she'd be like, where's your draft? Like, it's, you know, I need to see what you've done. Like, what's going on? Like, it's been a couple months. And I'd be like, okay, I just have to read to my kids, like, you know, one more time. Like, we just, I haven't, like, gotten, like, the final approval yet for you to see it. Because, like, it would change dramatically with their input. What, can you give me an example of a thing that they changed, like, something that's in the book now? Yeah. So, well, my daughter has always, from the beginning, been very sensitive to readers who would, might be scared and might not be able to handle suspense, like her. Oh, my God, my kids, too. Yeah, yeah. So, like, do you, like, I'm sure you've noticed that, like, movies are a lot harder to watch than TV shows because they're so much more suspenseful, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So my daughter's really good at advocating for that that child who's just like her who might not be, like, especially, like, if something, like, like with with Cherry being lost, uh, Violet's doll being lost in the first book, like, Mm -hmm. that was what was so scary to my daughter, more than Mrs. Gobblecracker. Just, like, the idea that you lost your sister's doll. Like, that, and that responsibility. Because, like, what happens is, like, Violet, her oldest sister, the oldest kid, she's, like, she, like, I think... She had borrowed the doll, and then Violet's like, I can't find my doll. And the minute she says that, Dory is like, oh, my God, I lost Violet's doll. Yeah. And she has this, like, panic, like, oh, my God, I lost my big sister's doll. Yeah. Right. And so your daughter... Yeah. So what was the original version, and what did your daughter make you change it to? It was just, like, more prolonged of, like, where the, the doll was. Like, honestly, I don't even remember, but, like, I remember that being, like, a big issue of, like, just wrap this doll thing, missing doll thing up faster. <laughs> it's too intense, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they also, like, came up with real ideas for the book, too. Like, my son was like, I think Mrs. Gobblegracker should turn into a kid, which is kind of a weird idea, but that is what happens. Like, I did what he's, like, his idea because I thought it was cool, and so in the third book, she drinks a potion and yeah. turns into a child. And, um... I know, and as an adult reading that yeah. you're just like wait what so weird but yeah. it's such but then as a yeah. kid you're just like right of course yeah that would that's the thing yeah. that would happen yeah, yeah. And, and, and my real my real actual editor at, at <laughs> penguin was like i don't i was she was very hesitant because it was just a strange thing to do like turn your character into a kid like i don't know if that even like if that's even turning a villain into a child is strange yeah. but um so she was hesitant but she but she also kind of trusted us there's one other thing that i want to point yeah. out here so the whole book, 
all she wants to do is play with her older siblings. Yeah. Like that is her motivating force and yeah. she'll do anything at all to play with them. And they never want to play with her. Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while they'll let her and then sometimes they'll almost let her and say no. Right. And and then there's this part in the middle where like so, she's like actually because like her older brother likes also playing puppy yep. and she likes playing puppy. And so there's this glorious period where she gets to play with her older brother yeah. and he lets her be yeah, the she puppy. Found a loophole. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But then that loophole gets shut down yeah. and then she's like back on the outs. <laughs> and um, and then there's like a, a, a tender moment where like she's like having trouble and her sister's sort of nice to her. And then she finds her sister's bouncy ball and sneaks and puts it under her sister's pillow yeah. while her pillow, while her sister is sleeping. Yeah. And it's like very selfless act. And then and then the next day they start playing with the bouncy ball. And they won't let her play. Yeah. And she found it. Yeah. And it's so horrible. Yeah. And so then, and so she's listening and then she's, and then they won't let her play. And then she starts playing with her imaginary friends, which she always does, but yeah. she's sort of feeling pe- sad about it. And then she's like, suddenly it's quiet. I run upstairs to go look. The bouncy ball bounced into the toilet. Luke and Violet stand over the toilet, staring down at the sunken ball. What should we do? Shrieks Violet. Are we in trouble? Says Luke. We'll have to get it out, says Violet. How do we do that? Says Luke. And then they both turn around to find me behind them, watching, smiling in <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this picture. <laughs> She's just standing there, yeah. like, beaming. Yeah, yeah this is her and moment. She, this is her she moment. And she's yeah. like, I'll do it, I'll yeah. do it, I'll do it. And so then she goes. Yeah. And, she, and they're all, like, totally grossed out. And she's just, like, happily just, like, reaches her hand yeah. into the bathroom and gets the ball. Yep. And then they end up playing with her. They wash her hand off, and then they end up playing, letting her play. Yeah. And... <laughs> There's so much that that's such a perfect. It's really hard to end uh, something yeah. without making it treacly, right. without with making it sort of happy, but like yeah. not making it. And like you manage to get all of the, all of the feelings of like here she is. She wants to be involved. It's really pathetic. Yeah, what she does. Yeah, yeah. She still. It's, it's right. She keeps her same status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at least she gets her wish. Yep. And. But also she sort of doesn't care. So it's sort of who it's both pathetic and heroic yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And it was just it were it's just there's so much going on in that scene, in that moment. Yeah. It was really, really cool. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you know that that was how it was going to end? How did you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't write yeah. with an outline. And I just I do remember like my kids bouncy ball going into the toilet yeah. and I got it out and they called right. me, you know? Yeah. And, and some, I mean, that's just what's so cool about like, just like the mystical process of writing and that like, like you can't come up with the ending yet cause it hasn't happened yet in real yeah. life. You know what I mean? Or some, something like that where I was like, Oh, like run back to my computer, you know, that's the end. Um, and that was the moment when you were reaching in yeah. to get the toilet. The, yeah. You were like, Oh, Dory can do this. Yeah. Yeah. But like before that, I had no idea how to end it. Uh huh. Um, I asked my kids uh, if you if they had any questions for you, and oh, and my cool. daughter's question was like, "Why aren't there more?" <laughs> oh, that's always the question. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But well, I mean, okay. So this is how I write these books. I um, I start with like the the things that my kids say that I think are funny, or like their friends, or uh-huh. like our cousins. Yeah. So like I'll have a document in my computer that is just like a word document of just a list of these like little quotes. Um, you know, stuff like uh 
Like, is it true if you if you eat a lot of meat and don't go to the bathroom, you'll die? You know, weird things that kids say. Like, like kid questions, yeah. kid logic yeah. that like represent kid world. Yeah, view, sort like of. Yeah, a list of things that I've amassed by spying on kids uh-huh. for many years. <laughs> and so then I, when I sit down to try to write a book, I take that list and I try to weave those snippets of little things into a story. I start with like that thing that I think that people most respond to is that there's something that feels authentic uh-huh. about these characters and these six-year-olds, this, this six-year-old. And it's, it's because it is authentic because I didn't write it because it's from kids. Uh-huh. So that's what I start with. And that's what I use to make these books. And now my kids are turning 13 and there are very few things <laughs> that I haven't already used. I mean, that's, there is like, there is a finite, there was a finite limit um, on their childhood. Like, so for the last book for Dory 5, they, you know, they were in sixth grade. This was the last thing that they cared about. They are yes. so sick of Dory. They were like, you know, my son was just like, when are you going to write number 20, Dory Drops Dead? You know, like they right. just, like it just took over because it took over our life and I had to go away on tour and they just resented that. And, right. you know, just a lot of like events and uh, people talking to them about Dory and they just really started to hate her. Yeah. But I, I still really needed them for that fifth yeah. book. Like I knew that I could, that, that they are a critical part of this process. So I had to bribe them. So I'd be like, so this, the, the deal was like, I would write it. I wouldn't like make them listen to like every single thing as I wrote it, but uh-huh. like every couple weeks or months I'd be like, okay, um, I need you guys to listen to what I wrote and you get five bucks each <laughs> and we're going to go, like we'd sit on my f- son's floor and I mean, and they would play with Legos as, I mean, even though they're like kind of past the age of yeah. Legos, like they still needed to do something as they were listening, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they'd get five bucks each and for, uh, they, they tried to advocate for like, and we get a dollar for each idea, you know? <laughs> and I was like, no, I considered that, but then they would just fight over like what, whose idea I was using, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it was like, you get $5 for like really actively listening and contributing because, like, because you care, you know, mm-hmm. not just, like, passively listening. Right. And so, like, even just, like, little things that they would say as I was reading. Like, I was just always rewriting it as I was reading it to them. So, like, in the fifth book, she, Dory really wants this toy called Tub Town. And, like, as my son was listening, even in sixth grade, he was just like, I really, really hope Dory gets Tub Town. You know, like, that's just how he felt. And, like, and then I just, like, put that in right away. Like, that George, her best friend, says that, you uh-huh. know? And so... George, the the one who always falls on the floor and, like, yeah. raise your hands if you fall. He's yeah. the one who says raise your hand all the time. Yeah, yeah. Where did the raise your hand come from? I don't that, know. Like, that's I don't so know. Funny. But, but, but he also says, he also gets hurt a lot. And yeah. he always says that was fun when uh-huh. he gets hurt. And yeah. that my son does that because it's, like, the stoic thing. <laughs> Pretend that it was fun when you <laughs> fell off your chair. But, um... So that 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 is kind of I guess the answer to why aren't there more Dory books is just that I am just one part of this this writing team and um I don't know I it, well, the answer is that it depends on child labor and like yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. and your children yeah. have aged out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and man. I also just like I want every I mean and maybe like 
I will do another book after like spending some time with kids. I don't know in what capacity, but like I just really, really, really want every book to be as good as the book before it. Like so the kids are just so excited for the next book to come out and and they wait for a year and some of them are like five. And so they're waiting for like a fifth of their life, you know, for the next book. And so it's like the idea of of a book coming out that wasn't as good and wasn't funny on every page. It wasn't full with this of the same kind of like a, a humor that, that that got them excited in the first place. Like I just could not do that. Like I, that was that's honestly been like the most terrifying prospect through this whole thing. It's just this idea that like people would feel disappointed. Yeah. Even when it's just like it takes me a year to make and then an hour for them to read, it's just like I'm so sorry. I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the hardest you thing. You seem really disappointed personally. <laughs> no, no, I feel I'm, really I'm, bad. I'm, yeah. I'm not disappointed. You're no, no, imagining I, telling your kids. No, okay. no, no. I'm no, that look in my face is just like that's the conundrum of doing anything. Right. That's the thing that I feel like we spend years making something that like it's like three hours on on the air. Right. I guess hopefully it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I see these books as like a gift that I'm working really hard on to give kids and I know that they're like in their beds and they're like reading it with flashlights and like pouring over the illustrations and like reading everything so carefully and I just feel like that I really need to live up to that. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Rob Zipko, Molly Messick, Caitlin Boguki, and Anna Ladd. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Mixing by Keegan Zemma, music by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, follow the show. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 